Perhaps I should just say a little bit about this presentation by way of uh, introduction. Uh, it will explain certain features of what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it. Uh, this was originally designed as a presidential address for the Royal Anthropological Institute, and I was going to give it at the ASA conference in Belfast last year. Was it last year? Yes. Uh, but I'm afraid the Icelandic um, volcano spirits uh, meant that it was not going to happen, and I'm still not sure whether it will be presented as a presidential address anywhere. Um, so you are, in fact, the first people to, to hear it. Uh, and, but because it was prepared as an address, you know, it has those kinds of uh, sort of presentational stylistic features. So I'm sure you'll recognize those. And it does mean, I'm afraid, that I'm going to do something which you know, I haven't done for a very long time, actually, and that is to actually read a paper. I got into the habit, which I think is a very good habit of all, of um, not reading papers, uh, but simply speaking t to them. But I'm going to read this because it really is uh, uh, an address. Uh, and it being a, a sort of presidential address, it does mean that uh, I'm departing from some of those more specific things people usually hear me talk about. So there's not much ethnobiology in this, or classification, cognitive anthropology, human ecology, or the sort of detailed work I've done ethnographically in Indonesia, uh, presidential addresses are simply occasions when you can more or less say what you like, rather grandly. Um, so uh, the, the, some of you will have either heard or, or read the, the address I gave, I think it was in 2009, which was subsequently published in the JRAI, and this in a sense follows on from that. Okay, so that's, that's the background. The renaissance of big issues in anthropology, uh, which was something I did talk about in the RAI presidential address the previous year, uh, inevitably draws us towards the notion of cultural transmission. This is because the systems of culturally mediated social relations that anthropologists are evidently so well equipped to study only survive in the long run because they are able to provide the conditions not only for their own continuity, but more critically for biological reproduction. I begin here with the notion of culture as the non-genetic social transmission of information and actions or practices that are mediated by the brain. As is now established, the brain itself has been subjected to selection pressures that have resulted in its greater size and complexity. As the efficiency of learning depends on memory, so the brain has not only evolved to process cultural information, but itself has been increasingly moulded by an environment in which cultural transmission has become crucial for survival, um, especially in humans. While in each lifetime, exposure to rich cultural environments reorganises neural circuitry in a way that ensures optimal performance in immediate social contexts, fixing memory through the limbic system and habitual bodily activity. Ultimately, therefore, culture as a resource for adaptation is more rapid, focused 
and flexible than either genetic or physiological adaptation, and an engine for the production of diversity more complex than anything found in biological systems, of which, of course, it is part. In biological systems, there is a clear, or there are clear chemical and other constraints, the structure of DNA, replication speed, sexual maturation, mate selection, and gestation times. But with culture, there are no such constraints. In studying cultural transmission, we have to explore and attempt to synthesize hypotheses over a series of levels. The micro-level, applying to bodily and cognitive aspects of processes of practical learning and innovation, and also interpersonal interaction. A middle-range level, at which social institutions serve as contexts for perpetuating transmission. And the macro-level, addressing issues of cultural history, adaptation, phylogeny, diversification, and spatial diffusion, often part of explanations of longer-term trajectories of socio-cultural change of the kind we might describe as evolutionary. Cultural transmission is, of course, imperfect. Apart from the occasional mutation and chromosomal malfunction, the information in genetic transmission while rather slowly transmitted in humans compared with microorganisms, is at least transmitted with greater fidelity. Cultural transmission, by comparison, is fraught with hazards and never reproduces information in a precisely identical form. All the more reason, given given the evolutionary importance for Homo sapiens, that human social systems are full of mechanisms that deliberately or inadvertently provide for secure and effective contexts in which it can take place. If we start, as I have suggested, with the idea that cultural transmission is the reproduction of information and practices through social learning, independent of the genes or other biochemical means, carried via the brain and involving one or more motor sensory system, then we can ask, as comparative zoologists have done, how common cultural transmission is amongst all living organisms. For many, for example, John Tyler Bonner, it is a phenomenon distributed throughout the animal kingdom. Of particular importance for anthropology are reports of the transmission of chimpanzee material culture, innovated washing of food in managed populations of habituated macaques, and self-medication using particular plant species. There are enormous numbers of cases of this kind that have now been described. The repeated discovery of similar cases serves to remind us to avoid teleological definitions of culture as something that sufficiently defines us as what we are as a species. Clearly, the more complex mental states of which humans are capable, consciousness, higher-order intentionality, language-sharing, narrativity, the very features that underpin the Weberian and Geertzian idea of culture as webs of significance, have a profound influence on how culture is transmitted. But we should not allow these elaborations to dictate our definitions. Otherwise, cross-species comparison would be impossible. In this paper, I will not discuss those large-scale studies of transmission sometimes described as cultural phylogenetics, typified in the use of the cladogram and in the slogan, Culture Evolves, which was the subject of a recent uh, 
Royal Society Symposium. While I'm broadly sympathetic to the more measured claims of such approaches, which certainly form part of the intellectual backdrop to what I want to say here, I shall instead organise my remarks uh, around five headings. Microprocesses, life cycles and generations, forms of knowledge, measuring growth and loss, interpersonal relations and contexts, and by way of a conclusion, rates of change. By microprocesses, I'm referring to observations of the detailed way in which cultural information is acquired at the level of the individual, of how culture moves from one brain to another. Studies of copying, learning and innovation by either neuroscientists, psychologists or ethnographers using cognitive and other theoretical frameworks. Such approaches, amongst other things, seek to ask whether the transmission of those mental structures that organise ideas, actions and relationships make us any different from other animals. It has been suggested that there is a problem in using the very word transmission to refer to the process by which cultural competence is acquired by individuals. It is true that if we examine the way in which information moves between individuals, the process is much more interactive and complex than suggested by the passive idea of transmission, which seems to suggest that this stuff called culture is flowing between generations and through time, or copying, which implies a, a fax or a photocopier analogy. But consider how individuals actually learn technological processes, such as metalworking or basket making. Another example that demonstrates powerfully the systemically involved character of transmission is the process whereby a baby learns how to use a spoon. This is incremental, comprising gradual coordination between eye, mouth, fingers and arms. The child is motivated by the desire to connect the food on the dish with its own need to satisfy its hunger. It is provided with tools that have been specially developed by others to achieve this objective. But while it may also be encouraged to perform a particular sequence of actions by a parent or other person, by and large it has to work out for itself how to perform a complex chain of operations and will generally succeed with repeated attempts. This is not merely replication, and all learning involves an element of self-discovery and therefore the potential for change. There's a similar problem in the way some psychologists and linguists use the term acquired in relation to language. For Tim Ingold, echoing Margaret Locke, this is much better understood as being continually regenerated through children's developmental involvement in the world of speech. In the context of large data sets of the kind sometimes examined by archaeologists and biologists, such irregularities and subtleties are normalised out, and the idea of transmission as group-to-group -group flow over time seems more plausible. So rather than argue for an alternative, I'm content to use the term cultural transmission to refer to all levels of analysis, given that we understand its limitations. These examples also drew, draw our attention to the differences between field data and data gathered in laboratory settings. 
Experimental studies, on the whole, tell us what can happen in natural contexts, not what actually does happen. A classic example of the disjunction that can sometimes occur is found in the history of studies of chimpanzee language learning. Under controlled laboratory conditions, the potential of chimpanzees for complex grammatical and novel communication using signing has been impressively demonstrated. And to some extent also, the ability to independently transmit these skills to other individuals. However, there is less evidence of chimpanzees innovating such practices under non-laboratory conditions and sustaining them over time. What the spoon-feeding example also exemplifies is that cultural transmission is neither the copying of abstract models of representation, but, as Bourdieu insists, the imitation of actions. This is why Tim Ingold prefers the notion of enskillment to that of uh, enculturation and rejects classic cognitivism, as he calls it, in favour of a more emergentivist approach. Indeed, he offers us a forceful critique of Sperber's position that knowledge is essentially mental content in the brain waiting to be expressed and transmission, the process through which representations are discharged. But accepting that the cognitive and physical process of transmission is embodied and not the mechanical replication of bits of biochemical information in the brain is not the same as accepting that there are no cognitive preconditions for learning. For Sperber, the problem with a tabula rasa is that it cannot learn. It is true that processing devices can themselves be learned, and this is what is happening in learning how to use tools, and in language learning, most specifically in the proposal for what has been called a language acquisition device, constructed and then furnished with specific syntactic and semantic content. Certainly, once the essentials of language are in place, learning and cultural transmission take on a different form. But how do we learn the processing devices? And here I quote Ingold again. Unless both sender and recipient possess a common set of interpretive devices, what Tubian Cosmides call human metaculture, communication cannot even begin. And at some point, there has to be an interface with those genetic inputs which predispose us to learn, however much they are intertwined with the non-genetic facts of biological development. Ingold sees the work of many evolutionary biologists as resting on a circular argument involving a simple redescribing of observed phenotypy at uh, as a set of epigenetic rules. He would much prefer to discard what he calls the opposition between innate cognitive mechanisms and acquired cultural content by showing how the forms and capacities of human beings, like those of all other animals, arise within processes of development, which are an unfolding relation between genes and environment. Organic form, therefore, arises as an emergent property of the total system of relations, and evolution becomes the derivational history of developmental systems. In this, he's following uh, Oyama. Learning to throw or to play a piano is not a matter of acquiring from, but of formation within an environment, 
of the necessary neurological connections along with attendant features of musculature and anatomy. The architecture of the mind is the result of copying, but not an automatic transcription of cognitive devices, but of following what other people do. Thus, the evolutionary process becomes one in which organisms set up the developmental conditions under which their successors live their lives, or, as Ingold puts it, the manifold capacities of human beings emerge within fields of practice constituted by the activities of predecessors. Consider, for example, the now famous case, I think, of the transmission of the recipe for Mornay sauce. While for Dan Sperber, the recipe includes everything you need to know to prepare the sauce in your own kitchen, and all that is necessary to replicate this part of culture is to read it, for Tim Ingold, the recipe can only be effectively replicated in the context of the reader's prior experience of things like melting, stirring, handling substances, yes, using bits of kitchen equipment, and, and so on. The information in the recipe book is insufficient, and indeed there can be no form of cultural transmission uh, that is simple replication of what has been previously known or done. Because of this, there, is always, there are always opportunities for minor corrections and loops and reflection and innovations. So more what you can see there in the bottom right-hand corner. From the microprocesses of learning, I want to move to the contexts in which learning takes place, life cycles and generations. The average human life cycle is less than 1,000 months and sets the outer limits of opportunity for the transmission of culturally informed behaviour. The lifespan of different species, as you can see here, are very variable. And we might expect a strong correlation between longevity and the volume of cultural behaviour transmitted. While in most it operates between genetic parents and their offspring, in some it may pass from grandparents between siblings and others who are genetically related. And in some cases where the dyads involved are not in humans, all these interactions provide opportunities for transmission, but the volume of activity between those who are not genetically related is much higher and varies greatly between different populations. The extent to which those other than parents are involved will reflect group size and patterns of movement in relation to the maturing individual. All core transmission is still strongly correlated with biological relatedness, though this markedly decreases as societies become more complex, larger, and acquire social divisions of labour, schools, writing, and mass media, such like. The window of opportunity determined by lifespan must, however, be further divided into phases of greater or lesser intensity of transmission. The short-term episodes during which cultural skills and information are learned are the precondition, but the sum of all transmission is not simply the aggregation of so many identical episodes. These appear to have a sequential structure, though are unlikely to take the same form in every case. 
One plausible example is provided here by uh, Ruddle and Chesterfield, who discuss learning craft skills in the Orinoco Delta. As individuals mature, the character of learning episodes alters, involving the use of more individual experience and ability to solve problems through social interaction. Learning to use a spoon at two is not the same as learning a differential equation at 15. In modern educational contexts, we tend to conceptualise learning for the purpose of measurement as a one-off event, both in laboratory settings and in the real world. We can see this in the testing and marking regimes beloved of audit culture, involving so many learning outcomes. But learning is not only a continuous process of accumulation, unlearning, rethinking and reinforcement, but is phase-dependent. It occurs in different ways at different stages of the life cycle, right from the moment when sentience is instantiated in the embryo through its immersion in a world of sound and movement. Thus we now know that the acoustical environment of the unborn child is the context in which babies learn to cry in their mother tongue. The crux of the problem, therefore, as Ingold reminds us, lies in understanding processes of ontogenetic development. Piaget long ago showed how the order of conceptual development is crucial to the performance of basic tasks. We cannot learn how to pour water from one container to another without mastering concepts of volume. We cannot learn needlepoint before we have mastered the intuitive physics of manipulating a needle. We literally cannot run before we can walk. We have to know how to use tools before we can execute the jobs that require them, except that often as not, we learn how to operate a tool by repeatedly using it in a real context. It is this idea that certain things have to be learned to acquire other things that has given rise to the idea of metaculture. Cultural equipment learned first in order to facilitate the learning of the rest of culture and upon which we have already touched. But precisely because these early learning skills are so important in childhood, they come with physical and mental filters that often render individuals less susceptible to innovation later in life. Among the more obvious examples are the establishment of a core phonological repertoire restricting later language learning, sex-linked ways of body movement, and basic classifying strategies. But it is not only that certain things have to be known in order to acquire other things, how to hold a knife before you can cut a joint of meat, but it is by no means the case that once learnt, cultural knowledge is inevitably retained, even that which represents a considerable investment in learning. What we learn with the short-term aim of passing an examination may not survive adolescence. But even more frighteningly, the young children of ethnographers who become more fluent in a local language than their parents uh, during fieldwork may lose the language with equal rapidity uh, if it is not reinforced on return from the field to their native culture. Quite apart from individual forgetting of information insufficiently deeply encoded in memory or temporary forgetting some cultural knowledge is age phase dependent. 
the knowledge acquired by children, here we are, some examples of childhood cultural behaviour, uh, the knowledge acquired by children in order to operate in the nursery or playground may be useless after adolescence as a work of Peter and Iona Opie uh, in documenting the acquisition of children's law so well exemplifies. This incidentally is Peter and Iona Opie in the playground doing ethnography. Participant observation, indeed. Although socialisation and enculturation are continuous processes and patterns and learning content change as we move through different social roles, there are periods in a developmental cycle when learning is more intense than others. Quantitatively speaking, um, most cultural knowledge is acquired in the first few years of life. For example, by the age of six, most uh, Kechimaya children can correctly identify 80% of the plant species growing in a household garden. And you can see you know, this is a, an experiment performed by Zaga uh, some years back. Uh, but you can see how you know, it, it, sort of, it plateaus off uh, after the age of about uh, six in a rather interesting way. Of course, that doesn't apply to uh, all kinds of uh, knowledge acquisition, but certainly to learning the names and identifications of home garden plants. Although new patterns of behaviour can always be acquired and information lost and replaced, once a particular threshold has been reached, the repertoire has a constraining effect on change and itself becomes part of the context. Life cycles and socialisation ensure that we are more likely to act in predictable than in unpredictable ways and to always act conservatively in response to new stimuli. Given the importance we are attaching to the life cycle and phase dependency, one might reasonably wonder how life expectancy uh, and other changes in the maturation process, age of menarche and of marriage, age and duration of formal schooling, impact on acquisition and transmission and on the potential for expansion. We assume that Pleistocene life expectancies were less than those for us living in the 21st century. We assume that. And the average lives of those of poor people living at subsistence levels in remote eastern Darfur, different from well-nourished urbanites living in post-industrial Kyoto. Indeed, just how much variation in life expectancy we can find in a single geographical population is well exemplified by the Japanese temporal set. But we also need to remember that life expectancy figures display wide variations in the width and the window of opportunity through which culture can be transmitted. And these will influence the effectiveness of the process. We need to ask how changes in the length of those windows for learning impact on the character and potential for transmission. Can more substantial and more complex cultural loads be transmitted where there are wider windows and greater overlap in lifespans of transmitters and transmittees? Indeed, we might wonder what the implications of ever-increasing predictions for life expectancy hold and might even engage in the kind of thought experiment suggested by the writings of those like 
J.B.S. Haldane and Olaf Stapledon, who envisage individual humanoid lives running into hundreds of years. When we coordinate serial life cycles and attempt to place them in groups of more or less contemporaneous cycles, we often speak of generations. Cultural knowledge and practice is routinely reported as having been transmitted from one generation to the next. Here, the word generation is usually understood as referring to individuals of an approximately equal relative age, ideally encapsulated in the idea of siblinghood. Members of the same generation are assumed to associate, and through association, to reinforce existing practice or confirm innovatory ones, to receive cultural information from and to be subject to social control of ascendant generations and to transmit cultural information and exercise social control with respect to descendant generations. The concept is built into all human languages as a fundamental tool of social categorization most obviously expressed in the generational terminologies of kinship, though the number of generations encoded varies between languages. For example, from the, the two generational terms we find amongst the Nharo San to, say, the six uh, that I have reported for the Indonesian Nuaulu. Moreover, the generation has become the unit by which we measure and configure processes of cultural transmission in terms of diachronic movement over and above the individual dyad. But how we might empirically measure a generation has never been, as far as I can see, discussed. It depends on the age when a female first produces live births and on the age of death. On the basis of recent historical evidence for menarche, this might be set at 15, though it is quite possible that as we recede further into the past, so the age of human menarche and first birth comes later, consistent with what we know of contemporary socio-economic and ecological constraints. But for increasingly earlier hominids, it may have been earlier, closer to the maturation cycles of other large apes, for example, the chimpanzee menarche is at about 7 to 9 years in the wild and 11 to 12 in captivity. Similarly, age of death varies widely between primate species and between different historical and ethnographic uh, populations. In very crude terms, we might say that the human lifespan giving rise to effective generational transmission is 30 years with a generational overlap of 15 years, 15 years being the time available to transmit all crucial cultural behaviour, assuming that transmission is vertical between parents and offspring. Alternatively, we could assume average date of first birth at a mother's age of 20 and death at 60, giving a 40-year period for effective transmission. It might then be hypothesised that the longer the generational overlap the more effective the cultural transmission and the greater adaptive fitness. Where there are more grandparents and more great-grandparents, there are theoretically more opportunities to transmit. The average rate of the generational cycle will influence the rate of population change 
and the rate of generational turnover will have important consequences for the speed and character of socio-cultural change, as would the smallest population and social group necessary for effective cultural transmission, that is the social socio-cultural equivalent of a viable breeding population, the minimum overlap of generations necessary for viable cultural transmission to take place, and the relevance of birth interval. The less life cycles or generations overlap, the steeper the graph of transmission and the more risky the process. While the rate of cultural transmission might be diminished, where there is an age difference between mates or effective parents. Okay, so that's just a little bit on the concept of generation. I now want to talk a little bit about how knowledge and practice are transmitted in relation to their form. Ultimately, all cultural information relies on some kind of bodily interface, but what varies is the extent to which language is involved in this process. There are many bodily practices that are learned through self-discovery or copying, reinforced by parental actions or those of other significant persons. Much of this learning occurs with self-reflection and systematic conscious cognition, such as digging in ways that are culturally specific or tying knots, None of the knowledge required for tying a knot need be in the form of language, but occasionally this uh, might help. In fact, I performed an experiment with uh, some of my students yesterday talking about cultural transmission, and I got them to replicate knot-tying uh, behaviour. Uh, and they actually said that talking about it as you were doing it actually made it more difficult. Yes. Uh, so language isn't always something that uh, facilitates a knowledge transmission process. Um, none of the knowledge required for tying a knot, then, need be in the form of language, but occasionally this might help. In the world of practical knowledge of the environment, much knowledge is, therefore, what we might call substantive, meaning that it may be quite complex and extensive, but is not itself ordinarily committed to language. This is the case with much folk biological knowledge such as that concerning plant maturation and ecology. People acquire this knowledge through a combination of long-term interactions with plants, as individuals, or in social groups, but the knowledge is seldom systematically organised linguistically. By contrast, lexical knowledge is all that knowledge encoded in language, or where the language may provide a key to accessing substantive knowledge that is not itself lexicalized. One step up from lexical knowledge is textual knowledge, in which words are organized into sequences of utterance. To some extent, we acquire cultural knowledge by mastering scripts that are, in part, encoded in language. Thus, Chuck Frake famously demonstrates for the Suvanun of Mindanao how to ask for a drink or how to diagnose a disease. The oral texts that compress emergent consensus and rules may be narratives such as myths, though may also take on a more permanent written form. And irrespective of the possible means of knowledge transmission, we must ask whether we get different patterns in different cultural domains. Are forms of bodily movement 
digging or tying knots that, as most long ago demonstrated, are no less culturally constituted than, say, speaking, transmitted differently from, say, plant names. We know that different skills and different kinds of knowledge take different times to acquire. Are there differences between domains constituted largely through physical objects compared with those that are more abstract and ideational, such as religion? Much cultural knowledge cannot be transmitted except in relation to the physical objects and properties to which it relates, as the objects themselves provide essential props in that transmission process. The interactive chemical properties in the different components of the beetle quid, for example, uh, or the psychoactive character of ayahuasca on patterns of thought, or the physical character of the canes used by a basket maker. Indeed, studies of knowledge acquisition and erosion have tended to focus on acquired or eroded elements of a single domain. For example, the transmission of plant knowledge, ethnomedical knowledge, food knowledge, and so on. What such an approach neglects is the relevance to transmission of simultaneous membership of several different domains. Thus, the erosion of knowledge in one domain may accelerate erosion in another of which that plant is a member, or alternatively, maintenance of knowledge of the plant in the context of one domain will enable retention of knowledge in another. The more complex the domain, the more this kind of overlap is likely to be significant. Degrees of overlap in content of cultural domains is just one way in which we can approach issues of fragility and robustness in different kinds of transmission system. But we can also see the difficulties in assuming all domains to be organised in the same way with different kinds of selection and decision-making processes in new understandings of how craft production techniques are constituted through operational chains grounded in complex practices or of local communities. Right. Understanding cultural transmission requires some identification of units. This is either because observers assume that the mind organises knowledge into bits to better affect its use and replication, or because only through recognition of such units as character states can it be scientifically measured. The terms used to describe such units are various, and I'm sure you're familiar with uh, some of them, uh, including memes, modules, schemes, cultural traits and behaviours, each bearing a slightly different theoretical load. In empirical contexts, these units may be words, they may be stretches of meaningful language combining words, phrases, sentences, stories, or their instantiated material analogues, graphemes and texts, or they may be artefacts that result from manufacturing activity, or descriptions of patterns of activity, social interaction and relationships. The problems encountered and the ease of identifying discrete units vary between domains of cultural knowledge and practice. And whether we are dealing with material culture, 
language, social practices and relationships or ideas, that this is methodologically hazardous territory is demonstrated in the long history of earlier attempts to identify cultural traits in the American tradition. Early cultural tray theorists tended to treat them as mental phenomena that might have linguistic, social and material expression. But we now know that we should distinguish between empirical units, the evidential things, from the ideational units we use to measure them. In many respects, the boundaries of the units selected will be fairly arbitrary because what is transmitted will vary between occasions and depending on the scale of the analysis. As Stephen Shannon and Mark Collard rhetorically ask, is every whistling of a tune or every telling of a story to be treated as an example of a tray? Thus, if we take the case of horse riding skills, do we look at individual artefacts, bits, stirrups, bridles, and so on? Or these items in relation to complexes of associated knowledge and practice? If the latter, then where do we draw the boundaries? Should we include uh, the conditions of the manufacture of included material objects or of their use? Uh, for blacksmithing and leatherworking knowledge is, is not identical to uh, horse management knowledge? Or should we look at the functionality of the system of material objects in its entirety or to horsemanship as an overarching set of skills? and knowledge. If we're looking at chimpanzee material culture, what is it that constitutes a behaviour that we can measure? Is it the use of the grass stalk to extract termites from a mound or the associated knowledge and practice that leads up to that point, including the selection and making of the tool? Indeed, we could say that all forms of anthropological analysis involve decisions about how to divide up distributions of continuously variable cultural data. But most often, such decisions are made casually or in ways that are assumed to be self-evidently true. The problem with transmission studies is that we are dealing with large formal data sets subjected to quantitative analysis, where the problems are less easy to disguise and where measuring associations between units incorrectly established can result in spurious correlations. Units, therefore, are no more or less than character states and can show either discrete or continuous variation. At this point, we can return to the notion of recipe for the unit of cultural replication. Despite Ingold's admonitions... The notion of recipe has proved productive in studies of cultural transmission, and not only of food culture. In medical ethnobotany, the instructions for preparing particular herbal treatments in both folk and scholarly systems of medical knowledge are routinely described as recipes by both practitioners and observing anthropologists. In technological studies, people speak of recipes for making a pot, for Bradshaw, recipes are a species of model for getting practical things done, 
to facilitate the memorability of complex procedures, the predictability of results, and social coordination of complex tasks. But as we've seen in the critique of Sperber's Mornay source example, it is difficult to see the recipe itself as the unit of replication, rather than the recipe plus a host of other cultural assumptions that permit its expression. Even if identifying units of transmission is hazardous and the process is interactionally complex, cultural practices and knowledge self-evidently move between individuals and through time. Old content disappears and new content is acquired. The starting point for understanding patterns of growth and loss is the occurrence and recognition of intracultural variability. For ethno-biological knowledge, for example, studies of variability are now numerous and have raised important issues concerning the extent of cultural consensus and how this might constrain networks through structured bias and stochasticity. Knowledge exchange and flow, the information upon which subsistence decision-making might be based, and strong evidence for the role of social and situational factors. Such studies have reinforced a distributional view of knowledge. But as long as knowledge remains orally articulated or even devolved in non-linguistically coded tacit experience, it often poses obstacles to effective reproduction through the literate mode, inviting serious oversimplification straining the limits of ordinary language as a medium of transmission and giving rise to specialised forms of language, such as mathematical notation, or devolved in practical interactive demonstrations of which language may be the lesser part. Consider, for example, how you would explain to a child how to tie a shoelace over the phone. As individuals vary in their classificatory, substantive and applied knowledge, so chance variations in small populations can have disproportionately and radical implications for transmission. Much more attention has been paid in recent years to inter-individual knowledge transmission, a focus that has been accompanied by acquisition of data on the distribution of age by, or distribution of knowledge by age and generation. There has been particular emphasis on studies of ethnobiological knowledge erosion and a body of evidence, uh, for example, that uh, collated by Scott Atran and Doug Medin, suggesting that substantive knowledge declines faster than lexical knowledge. This can account for the number of non-synonymous terms in circulation uh, that cannot confidently be matched by subjects to firm folk taxonomic identifications. For example, a long time ago in the 70s I collected data of this kind on Nauru frog identification and classification and the way in which those, uh, those circles are overlapping is the degree to which um, different informants may use the same term to identify through their vocalisation uh, different frogs. We know from 
studies in other parts of uh, Seram, where the Nauru live, that people uh, can much more consistently and reliably match frog vocalizations uh, to, to names. But then frogs are much more important for them as sources of minor protein. Um, so, and as we have already seen, erosion of knowledge in one domain may accelerate erosion in another of which that organism is a member, or alternatively, maintenance of knowledge of the organism in the context of one domain will enable retention of knowledge in another. The more complex the domain, the more this kind of overlap is likely to be significant. It is not that cultural knowledge is transmitted, but that it can grow and diminish over time both in terms of what individuals know and do and in terms of aggregate population knowledge. Innovation and growth in knowledge responds to new problems, more complex environments and new technologies that permit the transmission of greater amounts of knowledge and practice. Loss, inversely, is a response to the disappearance of old problems and the simplification of environments. In the context of ethnobiological knowledge, it occurs in times of ecological and economic change, in response to habitat loss and educational market and other kinds of change. There are plenty of studies of transmission where it has failed and plausible explanations given, but few studies of where it has been successful. As the most aggregated, at the most aggregated level, the dynamics of human cultural transmission must connect to changes in human demography. So population extinction will result in the extinction of a particular cultural configuration. Population decline in reduced opportunities for effective transmission. If we look at the converse, population growth, especially over the course of long-term human history, we must conclude that despite local population extinction and what Gary Nabham calls the extinction of experience, the overall trend of sustained population growth and geographical expansion into virtually all global habitats and especially exponential growth over the last 500 years has not only increased the sum of varying cultural practices as a correlate of population growth, but had far-reaching feedback consequences which lead to further cultural diversity. Although we have feared the impacts of globalisation and the death of geographically discrete variants since Levi-Strauss offered us his warnings about impending monoculture, the objective evidence is that with larger populations we have more cultural diversity rather than less though differently configured. Much work on cultural transmission is based on the contrast between the stereotypes of vertical transmission and um, from parent to child versus horizontal or contagious or epidemiological transmission between unrelated others and between one to many, for example, from a teacher to a class, and many to one, say from a choir to a listener. This has been made popular, particularly through the work of Luigi Cavallo Sforza, 
These modelling assumptions are elegant, have been highly influential and productive. But looked at from the standpoint of many socio-cultural anthropologists can seem simplistic. Indeed, because learning is often neither simply vertical nor horizontal, because the role of ego-centred learning as rediscovery, because learning is situational, seldom reciprocally dyadic, and ecologically constrained, and because of the evidence for multiple and temporal reinforcement, although there are many cases in non-human primate societies and in traditional small-scale human societies of transmission between non-genetic parents and children, as societies have become more complex with specialised divisions of labour, so an increasing amount of transmission occurs between non-kin. And in such cases, identifying the vertical line of descent is difficult. We can examine the vertical-horizontal issue in various ways. To begin with, it is a problem of representation, indeed often of diagramming. For Cavalli's Forza, the model is drawn from epidemiology, but it might equally have been drawn from kinship studies. The basic model here is shown in the slide, where we can see various alternative uh, uses of the vertical-horizontal uh, distinctions. We might say that A to C and B to D are horizontal, whereas A to B and C to D a vertical transmission. How then do we describe transmission from E to B or F to D? Is this vertical or do we need to describe it as oblique? Even more difficult is to know how to describe G to B or H to D. Is this horizontal because it may be acquired from individuals in the same generation and of approximately the same age? Or is it vertical because ultimately the knowledge may have descended through a sibling of a parent who have both acquired it from their common parents? It might be thought safer, therefore, to distinguish any transmission through kin, all being vertical, from transmission from unrelated others. But does it then make any difference whether they are of the same age or cohort, say, of an age grade, or from an older person or cohort? Another problem linked to diagramming conventions is shown in the same slide. Both of the lower diagrams relate to the same genealogical relations and biological individuals. However, we know from conventional kinship notation that those on the left are the older siblings and those on the right, of those on the right. In the middle diagram, learned culture passing from A to B or C to D, either directly or indirectly, might be seen as horizontal. In the lower diagram, when we lengthen the vertices to indicate relative age, the transmission might be seen as vertical or at least oblique. Let us take an empirical example. When a Nualu girl is actively learning how to make a basket, she will do so in the context of having watched other adults and girls making baskets, though the statistical likelihood is that she will have spent more time watching her mother and older sisters in their own household than both adult and immature girls from other households to whom she is less likely to be related genetically. 
Her mother will begin to instruct her, and she will ask her mother how to perform certain tasks. And although these interactions are most likely to be the predominant ones involved in the learning process, she will also receive instructions from aunts, from grandmothers and older female siblings. She will also interact with other girls of a similar age, making baskets, some of whom are from her own house and some of whom to which she is only distantly related. She will also spend a lot of time by herself when she is learning certain procedures, not by rote instruction, but through independent problem-solving based on knowledge of the end product. In other words, she is engaged in reverse engineering. We might portray this, uh, these relations, as I've done in the upper diagram in this slide. But determining which are the lines of vertical transmission and which the lines of horizontal transmission, and whether either alone is a sufficient characterization of the process of transmission, is difficult. In reality, we have a network which we can re-describe in terms of horizontality and verticality, depending um, on what we wish to emphasize. Topologically, or in terms of graph theory, it doesn't really matter what is vertical and what is horizontal. All that matters is the direction of aggregate flow between the nodes. We might also justify the contrast between vertical and horizontal by saying that they are perfectly reasonable simplifications based on preponderant interactions of a kind that are common in scientific data processing and reasoning. Outside the arena of kinship, we could ordinarily see transmission from teacher to child and from artisan to apprentice as vertical, but in relation to descent through kinship, they might be seen as horizontal or oblique. Consider also the acquisition of cultural practices by children. Is the transmission of a rhyme between two six-year-olds to be counted as horizontal transmission? and that between a seven-year-old and a six-year-old as diagonal or oblique. Perhaps diagonal transmission between individuals in the same age class, but with non-contiguous life cycles, is a strong component. The Opis, in their work on the law and language of schoolchildren, make a distinction between rhymes learnt in the nursery and those learnt in the playground. In the nursery, the rhymes invariably pass from parents or alloparents to very young children, who in turn may pass on those rhymes to their children or allochildren 20 years later. Then there is the question of scale. If we look at lines of transmission at the micro, interpersonal level, we see a network of lines of causation and reinforcement. At a macro level, this might look like simple vertical transmission. Thus, returning to our kinship diagrams, what looks like horizontal transmission from father to brother, or from a father's brother, looked at in another way, can be represented as vertical transmission from a father. What looks like a tangled network of flows and information at one level may look like a straightforward line of transmission at another. But interpersonal relations of learning do not exist in a social vacuum, and their context may affect the content, form, and rate of transmission. 
while procedures and cycles of socio-cultural reproduction in emergent systems display properties that are more than the sum of their individual parts. We've already seen this for life cycles and generations. Individual actions are constrained by the systems of which they are situated, in which they are situated, and at the same time provide the context for other individual actions. As individuals grow and mature, they move through sets of social relations that change and provide different possibilities for transmission, while the transmission of institutional arrangements cannot simply be modelled as the aggregation of more specific cultural components. We can see this in relation to gender. Much core knowledge will always be gender neutral, but some is strongly gender linked, either because the opportunities are constrained by patterns of gender biased interaction, or because specific cultural rules apply. The gender linkage may either work in a kinship context, for example, from father to son, mother to daughter, mother's brother to sister's son, grandmother to granddaughter, and so on. Uh, or we can see in B in this slide, information may pass between A and D rather than between A and B because of birth order and gender implications or considerations. Turkmen weaving skills pass from mother to daughter. Nuaulu basket making from mother to elder female siblings to daughters and younger female siblings. Or Jingu Kaibu basketry making between senior and junior males in the same local kinship group. Or knowledge may be transmitted finally, as described by Elizabeth Tzu for some Chinese secret medical knowledge. Alternatively, there may be gender-specific institutions constituted independent of kinship descent, as in a nunnery or in a madrasa, or as in Moroccan woodcarving guilds, or in Yemeni minaret building. There's plenty of good ethnography on these. If cultural information can only pass through one sex, then this reduces by 50% the opportunities for transmission. A similar situation applies to other divisions of labour. Specialists will, by definition, always be a smaller part of the whole, and therefore opportunities for transmission reduced in the population as a whole. Patterns of descent and inheritance may influence transmission of particular kinds, irrespective of the gender of individual recipients. So knowledge may pass through patrilines to males, or males and females of the same patrilineage, as is the case with much Nuaulu sacred knowledge. In matrilineal societies, it may be the opposite, men acquiring knowledge through the female line, as where Minankabao elder brothers play a crucial role in instructing the younger generation within the matrilineage. Residents linked to patterns of descent may be important with endogamy and marriage alliances determining intergroup and intragroup movement. Julian Stewart famously observed the association between continuity in a male, father-to-son residence, and maintenance of ethno-ecological knowledge associated with hunting amongst the Shoshone, while James Dietz was able to show through the combination of Chumash archaeological and ethnographic data from Southern California how the movement of women 
associated with very local residence patterns could explain pattern variability in pottery design. Recipes for medicines and magic, combining both symbolic and technical elements, are often owned in whole or in part by particular descent groups, such that their transmission is skewed by descent. Outside of kinship, other institutions have context and rules for cultural transmission. The transmission of esoteric symbolic knowledge may be constrained no differently from the acquisition of technical craft knowledge. Just as craft knowledges require specific opportunities for transmitting practical information, such that hunting skills can only be completely acquired when opportunities present themselves, so symbolic knowledge and ritual practice may be even more intermittent in providing opportunities. Certainly how to perform a ritual can be learned in the abstract, but competence can only be acquired in practice. Many rituals occur frequently, so that opportunities to ensure fidelity of transmission are numerous, but some, especially in small populations, may occur with remarkable infrequency, and participants may be faced with major problems in replicating correct performance and utterance. No wonder that such rituals give rise to problems, and where there is a cultural insistence on fidelity, sacred sanctions may place pressure on performers to conform. There are many ethnographic examples of prescriptive institutionally sanctioned conformist bias from studies of ritual and art, tight Jewish Torah and Quranic rote learning regimes, and perhaps in its most developed form in the Orthodox Christian icon painting. On the other hand, we might imagine that infrequent rituals provide precisely that opportunity in which change can occur, and there we might expect them to change more quickly than rituals or cultural events occurring more frequent, with more frequency where experience and member knowledge is more reliable. And here I realise that I'm sort of treading on sort of Harvey Whitehouse kind of territory, so I'll move on. Uh, and finally, I just want to say something about rates, rates of change. Um, it will be obvious that certain cultural features change faster than others, while some have remained basically unchanged for many thousands of years. Thus, while form and decoration in pottery making can alter quickly, the motor techniques underpinning the general process of potting takes much longer to both acquire and to change. Such differential change is found in and between all cultural domains, but there are many examples of remarkable resilience. Consider, for example, um, the spoon, the comb, and in particular, the needle and fish hook. Yeah? These are all forms that display not only a remarkable antiquity, but also a stability over thousands of years. Now, culturally, this is a very interesting kind of phenomenon. What we need to ask is whether these long periods of continuity are evidence of fidelity in transmission, or whether the forms are so protean that they would anyway be constantly reinvented due to universal patterns of problem-solving in relation to the constraints of sensory-motor coordination, the outcome of an imperative for perpetual rediscovery. Moreover, the presence of certain items of material culture over the long term 
provides strong evidence for linked persistent core motor sensory behaviours, such as we have inferred from the concept of a spoon and its use. Though in such cases we cannot simply explain persistence through cultural transmission, but rather the interaction between transmitted elements, both objects and behaviours, and developmental processes of rediscovery. On a different scale, for a different domain, the OPIs note the remarkable stability of children's playground rhymes over a period of several hundred years, but equally the miraculous speed of innovation. That's their word. Hark the herald angels sing. Mrs. Simpson's pinched our king appeared within weeks of the first public announcement of the constitutional crisis in 1936, between November and December of that year. The stochastic features of the social process also influence fidelity and speed of transmission. Thus, since nursery law is transferred via adults to children, there may be a 20 to 70 year gap between learning and teaching, while playground law may be transmitted within the hour. Thus, over a period of 130 years, a rhyme such as Little Fatty Doctor, How's Your Wife? may have passed through 20 successive generations. The interpersonal relationships involved in transmission influence its speed. One-to-many transmission, as in classroom teaching or internet communication, Twitter, can result in rapid change, as we've seen, or rapid reinforcement, whereas many-to-one transmission favours cultural conservatism. Looking at it differently, things that change quickly are most likely to result from individual choice, whereas things that change slowly are more likely to reflect collective choices. As we've seen, the generation as a unit of time-lapse can only can provide insights relevant to an understanding of rates of change and cultural stability. For whereas the unit of a year is surprisingly arbitrary in terms of the cycles for acquiring and transmitting knowledge, the lifespan and its abstraction, the generation, is not. However, variation in generational width dependent on demographic and social factors, also influences our measurement of cultural change and reproduction. Thus, if we assume a 30-year lifespan, then only 333 generations have elapsed since 10,000 years BP, what we might say is the date of the Neolithic Revolution, and 2,000 years since 60,000 years BP, that point at which some archaeologists agree the origins of modern language and symbolic culture might be dated to. While if we use a 15-year interval, then the numbers are 667 and 4,000, respectively. And if a 60-year interval, then 167 and 1,000. Broadly speaking, as we move from early hominins to contemporary homo sapiens, so people live longer, permitting increasing overlap between two, three, and in some cases four coexisting generations, depending on patterns of breeding, maturation, and longevity. These kinds of overlap allow for new routes of transmission, including the skipping of entire biological generations. Technological innovations linked to culture transfer, such as writing systems and electronic communication, may have even more profound implications. I 
began with the claim that the analysis of cultural transmission occupies a central place in anthropology. Indeed, the notion of cultural transmission as the instrument for uh, understanding the means by which social systems reproduce themselves must be central to any social theory and to anthropological theory in particular. This has not always been so, and a succession of so-called modernist theories during the 20th century were preoccupied with social stability through an examination of the functions of its institutions at a fairly abstract level. The question of stability is still central since it makes possible both the continuity of the underpinning knowledge and practice, which itself is the paradoxical precondition for change and further complexity. How we might best theorise the notion of transmission and develop appropriate methodologies for its study remain controversial. Here I've tried to point to some persistent and emerging issues. Let me just summarise. The first is this last paradox that I've mentioned. How we might relate the stability required to ensure effective continuity with the ability and necessity to change. This is less of a paradox if we distinguish core stability in the apparatus of transmission, be it the motor sensory complex for learning spoon feeding or the cognitive apparatus for organising categories, from the variability and potential permissiveness of everything else. Such a distinction has been criticised because of the empirical difficulties of separating metaculture from culture or cultural content from cognitive process and reifying the contrasting categories. Secondly, the virtues of ethnographic approaches are not invalidated by large-scale quantitative approaches. And we should not, uh, while there is no reason to think that in analysing larger data sets, we should not detect a process of descent through modification or variation and selection of the kind advocating uh, those approaches described as cultural phylogenetics. Thirdly, we need to avoid essentialist cognitivist assumptions about how transmission takes place and should agree that at the level of the individual, the process is largely one of instantiating cognitive or technical or social practices through bodily and social development. And four, forms of transmission may vary between domains of cognition and practice. Carpet designs, food-getting strategies, and religious ideas are not necessarily transmitted in the same way, not always amenable to the same kinds of evolutionary patterning. And fifthly, the units we use to measure transmission must be appropriate to the scale and character of data examined. Measuring variation in material culture is different from measuring symbolic culture. And sixthly, in making sense of transmissions, we need to understand that process and structure are recursive. Reproduction and change arise in systemic contexts, but those same processes give rise to the context in which successive processes occur. This applies to both micro-level processes of innovation and interpersonal interaction, and to macro-level, long-term, cultural continuity and change, and the patterns of spatial diffusion that reflect this. 
In Olaf Stabledon's First and Last Men, a work of unprecedented scale in the science fiction genre, we're invited to imagine a history of humanity from the present onwards across two billion years and 18 distinct human species. The timescale envisaged might well, if it is ever played out, require different models for understanding the dynamics of cultural transmission than those reviewed here. By comparison, the time periods and series and data series we can realistically imagine are minuscule. Indeed, in looking at history from a Stabledonian perspective, what is remarkable is not simply the fidelity in transmitting core elements, but how rapidly in terms of geological timescales complexity has developed. The time that has elapsed since the first appearance of cities and monumental architecture, little more than 5,000 years, about 70 lifetimes of 70 years, a mere 0.002% of the nearly 3 million years since early hominids first produced recognisable tools. In making sense of human cultural transmission, we can appreciate the brevity of this time scale and the rapidity with which complexity may arise. Thanks very much.